The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Tonight, the title of our Bible study is Jesus Calms the Sea. This is a very, very familiar story. Uh, it, it, gets, it gets a lot of time and attention, and I think rightfully so. At the very core, the heart of the story is the deity of Jesus. As we see him speak to the wind and the waves in the same way that, God, that he spoke at creation, he speaks things out of, into existence out of nothing, we see that even creation responds to him tonight. So I want you to know that as we get into this. And we're going to talk a lot about storms tonight because that's what the, the disciples encounter on the Sea of Galilee, storms. But for me and for you, storms are circumstances or situations we might call them, call it, you know, those of us who are more, a little more geared for church, we might call it a trial. Um, I think Paul uses the word uh, specifically affliction from time to time. And when, you know, people come to see me and they're going through a hard time and they're hurting, you know, they're genuinely hurting and struggling, uh, storms will bring to the surface many of the things that are below the surface. Typically, you know, we have them down below, but then the storm comes into our life and they come to the, to the surface and we begin to wonder things about God, maybe that we haven't thought before, like where is he? Is he causing this? Um, you know, we begin to wonder about ourselves. I know that I encounter a storm, my insecurities come quickly to the surface. And then we begin to wonder about other, our other important relationships. And so that's some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. For, what I want to do is pray and then uh, read the passage of Scripture, and then we'll look at it a little more closely. So Heavenly Father, we come to you. Every person in this room has navigated a storm, a season of difficulty, a time when we thought thoughts about you. We had questions about you, Lord, and, 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 and some of them were painfully honest, and, and, and we've also had questions or observations about ourselves or, or maybe our spouse or our children or friends. Uh, Lord, we've, we've longed for the storm to be over, for the pain to subside. And for many of us, Lord, if we could articulate what we had hoped for, and maybe some are experiencing a storm tonight. As I look back on the storms that I've experienced, I've simply wanted the pain to go away and for life to return to what it was prior to the storm. I wanted the, the, the constant concern that, that greeted me at early morning hours that robbed me of sleep to be removed from my life, and I wanted to go back to what I would have determined as being life being normal. And yet, Lord, you allow storms. And so, Lord, as we study this, this portion of Scripture, the conclusion of chapter 4, then, Lord, speak to us words of encouragement and strength. And, Lord, we might not be going through a storm currently, but we know that the forecast for the future likely includes one or two. But, Lord, there are people in our lives who are currently, well, for them it's nighttime and it's dark and it's cold and the waves are pounding against their lives. So, Lord, give us, give us something that would help us 
uh, empathize with them and encourage them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, it says, on that day. Now when he says, Mark says on that day, he's going all the way back to verse 1. And everything that takes place in this chapter is included on that day. When evening had come, he said to them, that is to his disciples, now think the 12 apostles, but also other followers who were with them. And he simply says, let us go across to the other side. That is the the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd, they took him. Now there's a transition here where it says, they took him. That is the disciples, the apostles, probably the fishermen, took him with them in a boat just as he was. And the just as he was there just speaks to the condition that Jesus was in. And we'll, we'll, we'll see a little bit more about what Mark's talking about in a moment. And other boats were with them. Uh, there's a lot of first-person knowledge here. And a great wind aro- arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, please notice that, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern or in the, the rear of the, the boat, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the seas and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Now he speaks to the disciples. Why are you so afraid? Have you still, or do you continue not to have faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, just a little bit of an introduction here, but for the most part, initially, at the beginning, when this letter was written, when Mark wrote this this letter from Rome, it was to Gentile Christians. It were to people who lived in and around the city of Rome. Now, in the back of your mind, I want you to know that Rome was the center of the known world then. It was where, it's where the government was. It was, as a matter of fact, you've heard the terminology, all roads, Roman roads anyways, led to Rome. So this was not only, this was the center of the world, and it is where believers, it is where Christians lived and practiced their faith. In the past, many of these individuals, they, they worshipped foreign gods. They worshipped Roman gods or re- Greek gods. And, and incorporated into their social life was going to the temple of their gods and, and offering sacrifices and participating in worship. Many, many, much of it was, was immoral, but nevertheless, when they became a Christian, they left that part of their life behind. And in doing so, they were misunderstood, clearly misunderstood, by family and friends. They laid some things behind in order to follow Jesus, and in doing so, people came to assumptions that were not true. They were accused of being atheists because they worshipped Jesus, the Messiah, and they no longer worshipped this pantheon of pagan deities. Looking back, you and I would say that they were pretty good citizens. That is, they would obey the Roman law as long as it didn't contradict the scriptures. Christians at this time and all through history, even today, were those who cared for the poor and the sick. And we have secular writings between Roman officials 
who are having this dialogue back and forth, you know, via, via uh, letters saying, but if we persecute the Christians, if, they, if we kill the Christians, who will cast out our devils? This was the church at this time. They walked in power and authority. They showed love to those who were suffering. They obeyed the Roman law. And like I said, unless it violated the scriptures on any level. Despite their redemptive influence, the church was the object of Nero's wrath. He hated the church. The early years of the emperor's rule were peaceful. However, in AD 59, his behavior began to become increasingly cruel. Some attribute this to his mental health. We, we have absolutely no explanation, but, but some think that, that in a way that he became, he became unbalanced mentally. It was also at this time when Rome, the city, remember the focus of the world, all things came to Rome, all things went out from Rome, and it was struck by a fire. The fire lasted seven days and, and consumed 80% of the city. Now, there were those, probably Nero's enemies, who suspected that he caused or, or, or in some way was a part of this fire being set because he had this, this ego and this pride that they suspected that he wanted to rebuild the city to his glory or to his fame. You know, Roman rulers were builders. If you go to, Jerus if you go to Israel today, you see the Temple Mount, or you go out to Caesarea, or to Masada, you see these wonderful, the ruins of wonderful buildings, and it, it's, it's quite impressive. But there's this idea that if they built these cities and built these fortresses, that they would be remembered. Isn't it interesting that when we think of Jesus, he is the one who builds a church. He is the one who builds his character and his nature into people. Early on in my Christian walk, although I couldn't articulate or explain what had happened to me, my friends would regularly say, you've changed. You don't talk the same. You don't do the same things. You don't, you don't participate in the things that you used to do. What happened to you? And I would look at them in be bewilderment and go, you know, I really don't know. Well, I had been born again. I had been transformed by the spirit of the living God. I, 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 I experienced a hunger for his word where any time in my life previous to being born again, I would have tried to read the scriptures and they would have made absolutely no sense to me. I mean, I really would have tried to read a, a Bible in the King James English, which was challenging for me to read anything. But there was this hunger for the word. And there was this desire to be with other Christians. I remember having this I don't know if it was emotional, but just having this feeling when I had spent time with Christians and we talked about Jesus and, and we talked about the scripture and we prayed for one another. It was, it was what consumed our coming together. 
the sharing of very, very simple meals because we didn't have very much money. And at the point in time, we didn't have any children. Wanda and I were in our early 20s. And, and yet these times of fellowship, I think it was true koinonia, filled our entire week when we weren't, when we weren't working. So then after the fire, Nero, as history tells us, found this group of people to blame. And, and in blaming the Christians, blaming those, those people who used to be with us but now we're no longer, who used to worship with us, used to participate in temple worship and now are no longer with us, in doing so, his wrath, as I said, was poured out against the church. And the church being, for the most part, poor and powerless, why they were an easy mark. I want you to keep this in your mind. Because so severe was his persecution is that he killed Christians. And he thought up these horrendous ways to take their life. Now, generally during the various waves of persecution through the, through the first century, they would come to the Christian and they would say, if you will say Caesar is Lord, if you will take a pinch of incense and you will burn it at the altar, well, then we'll let you go. And it was during that time where the normal, natural Christian response would be, there is no Lord but Jesus. And listen, and then they would go away to their death. So dark was this time that in the Colosseum in Rome, entertainment was watching Christians dying in various forms. My friends, they died, they experienced a storm of persecution because they associated with Jesus. And I don't think we need to look back 2,000 years. I think we can see this happening in the world around us today in various countries where Christianity is outlawed. They, like Abraham, the patriarch, look forward to the new day. In Hebrews, this should be on the screen, Hebrews 11, verse 10. This is the New Living Translation. The writer of Hebrews says, Abraham, speaking of his faith, was confidently, I think that is a reference to his faith, his belief in God. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city, a place to live. Now, you and I in this passage read the word city, but I think of the Garden of Eden. He was looking forward to a place to live where he would be with God, and then he goes on to say, with eternal foundations. He was looking for home. He was looking for where he belonged. And I think that would resonate with some of us who are here tonight. A city who was designed, a city that was designed and built by God. Mark wrote his gospel shortly after both Paul and Peter were martyred again at Rome during Nero's persecution. Church history tells us that Paul was held in the Mamertine prison. It's where he would write 2 Timothy. And there would come a day that they would come and they would take this, this aged apostle and they would take him and they, they would behead him. Listen, they would behead him. He would die releasing him into the presence of his God. Tradition also tells us that, that it was Peter and his wife 
who were brought before a cross, obviously given the opportunity to renounce Christ. And his wife would say something to him, and he would turn to her, and he would say, Never has Christ let us down during our life. We will not let him down now. And listen, when they came to crucify him, again, tradition tells us that he, re- he, a- he requested that he would be crucified upside down because he didn't feel he deserved to die in the same way that his Lord and Savior, Jesus, did. Two faithful men died at the hands of a madman. Listen, because they followed Jesus. Two imperfect yet faithful individuals who walked the majority of their life with Christ died because they continued to follow him for the balance of their lives. So here's the point. Following Christ means that we will, with all certainty, please hear me, that we will, with all certainty, experience storms in this life. I say this with all due respect, but Jesus is not included into our life with many other interests. He is Lord. I say this too with respect. Jesus is not a life coach. He doesn't come into our life to make us better. Do we become better? I certainly believe so, but that's not why he comes into our life. He doesn't come into our life to be our therapist, although I know he's helped my mental health greatly. Jesus is God. He is our Lord and our Savior, worthy to be praised and to be glorified and to be served. And when we do, we will experience storms. But as I want to share with you tonight as we begin here, every storm has a beginning. And there are some of you tonight that will know exactly what I'm saying. Every storm has a beginning and every storm has an end. Trials related to our faith serve as opportunities to experience his presence. They remind us that he is near and that he alone brings peace during storms. Think, too, that Jesus' presence in storms is realized by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. His great promise to the disciples once he told them that he must leave their presence, that he must, after being with them three years, after being their friend, after being their teacher, after rescuing them from many uh, circumstances and situations. But when he went, he said, I am going to, I'm going to pray to the Father and he will send, he will send his spirit, his parakletos. So during storms, we depend upon the spirit. Let me throw another, let me throw something else at you. During storms, we are dependent upon the church. For sometimes Jesus is made real to us through the Spirit. Other times Jesus is made real to us through the love and the support of another Christian. The church has great value during storms. And so as we've gone through these uh, handful of verses here, uh, we see the Galilean ministry, Jesus calms the storm. We've already read through the passage, so I just want to work through these, these, like I said, these handful of verses. But I want you to take note that the chapter begins with the crowds, the multitudes coming, which require Jesus to get into a boat, push off from the shore, again, facing the multitudes, likely sitting down and beginning to teach. The multitudes are focused on this boat. His voice goes out, it strikes the top of the water, and it, it, and it spreads across the crowd. 
It's a type of amphitheater as there's the level, ground, the level water and then the slopes going up and the people are listening to, to teaching, to parables. It's a long, long day. And in the same way that truth is imparted from the surface of the water during the day, we will see tonight that truth is imparted to his disciples again from the surface of the water in the middle of a dangerous storm. Jesus teaches a lesson to them. Jesus teaches a lesson to us. Truth spoken to the people provided the opportunity to be released from the chaos of spiritual darkness. Authority spoken to the wind and the waves brought immediate calm to those who feared for their lives. This miracle caused the disciples to wrestle to grapple with the reality as to who Jesus was on a deeper level. Let me say this, on a deeper level than they ever would have thought or considered had there not been a storm. I know there have been times when difficulties have come, and, and I guess I'll just say that it generally for me a storm is represented when something's going on in my family. Uh, there's been a season when, when, when my in-laws or my, my mom, my dad were going through something, and, and I think my father was the first one. He was diagnosed with cancer. He was given six months to live. I was in my, probably in my 20s. I was working in construction. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to handle it. I would go to the hospital. I would visit him. We would have these conversations where he was dealing with the end of life, but again, I didn't know what to say and I didn't know what to do. It's now that I realize that it was just being there, not having necessarily, are there any answers, but again, the ministry of presence. I was a believer then. And then watching my wife, who I will admire for the rest of my life, care for her parents as they they dealt with different things towards the end of their life, ultimately passing. And then most recently, my mom, a couple of years ago, just watching her go. And, and it's not as though I carried the brunt of what they were going through, but it was one of those things that were continually on my mind. And I don't know if you'll be able to relate to this, but there is this interesting change of relationship as your parents get older and it feels like you become the parent and they become the child. That is that you need to make decisions for them. They're medical decisions, they're financial decisions. The storms had a season, they had a beginning, and they had an end. And there were many times we simply asked God to either bring healing or to give us wisdom and decisions regarding our our family. I wanted to to bring up a point here that I want you to think about, and that is that Jesus doesn't cause storms. He leads us through them. Jesus doesn't cause the storm. He leads us through them. And the reason I think this is very important, and I'll talk about this a little bit in the conclusion, is because while we're in the middle of the storm, we can question God's goodness. And when we question his goodness, we're questioning his character. And so as you sit here tonight or you join us online, 
I want you to know that Jesus does not cause the storm that you're going through, but that he leads us through us. You remember Psalm uh, uh, 23, where David says, of the good shepherd, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You see, tonight, whatever you're going through, Jesus is with you. He hasn't caused the circumstances or the situations that are buffeting you back and forth, but he will lead you through the storm. For those who think that being a Christian results in smooth seas, pay attention to our story. Following Jesus doesn't guarantee a problem-free life. It means the opposite. As I said earlier, it means the certainty of storms. To, be, to the persecuted church, uh, you should see this passage on the screen. It's from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses, verse 12 and 13, where the apostle writes again to a church that was being severely persecuted. It's interesting, the first, first century church in Jerusalem was persecuted by the Jews. Outside, it was persecuted by the Romans. And so that Peter writes to individuals who were scattered geographically around the Roman Empire, he says these words, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 13, but rejoice. He's asking us to look in a different direction. He doesn't deny the fact that there is a trial and that it's fiery and that, that it's difficult and it's hard. But he asks us to take our eyes off of the storm, verse 13, when he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. As you share, as you walk side by side with Jesus and because you associate with him, you experience these difficulties. Why? That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's three things from Peter's, this passage from 1 Peter I want you to think about. Most of you know that trials or storms will purify your faith. That, 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 that in the furnace... Our faith is strengthened. It's purified. Not something I would volunteer for, but it is a benefit. Secondly, trials remind us that our values are shaped by an eternal perspective. That we need to look up. That we need to remember. It has a beginning. It has an end. But the outcome is eternal. That there will come a day that we will stand before God complete. We will stand before God whole, lacking nothing, because he walked with us through the trial. Because in the midst of the trial, we turn to him again and again and again for strength and for power. And then the third thing is that trials unite the church. You will not find a church that is more united than a persecuted church. You hear stories about these gatherings of people, and as soon as they find out they're Christians, there's this immediate bond. That it's almost as though the fires of persecution, the, the, the difficulties drive us together. It is the way that we're wired. It is the way that it is supposed to be. 
because we need each other. And I think that when things are good, this is humbly my opinion, that when things are good, we can think we don't need anybody else. Yet when difficulty comes, we become a little less self-confident, a little less self-sufficient, and we turn to people, and we ask for help. You know, there's an interesting verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul says of God that he is the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Listen to this. He's the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts or strengthens us, that's what the word means, who strengthens strengthens us in our afflictions. Listen to this. This is his economy. That we might be able to comfort others also with that same comfort. You know, if you've been through a tough time and you've come out the other end, you have something to give. That there's a strength that's been given to you as you you have depended upon God through this trial, through this storm, that you have something of great value to impart to another person who's now going through it. Now, you, you might not have all the right answers, but there's a strength in the core of who you are that was placed there by God that you have to give others. I am enamored with the idea or the concept that the church is made up of people so dramatically different in every way. And yet when the community around them sees them loving each other, it speaks to this unity. Storms can come in the form of a health crisis, a financial downturn, or a broken relationship. Please, as you experience them, remember that this is the purification of your faith, that you live by an eternal perspective, and that you need others. I don't know if you're anything like me. This is probably more of a confession than anything else. But sometimes when I'm hurting, I want to be by myself. I I want to withdraw. I want to to think of, and I don't know that that's totally wrong or bad, but I also need to entertain the idea that God might send somebody to me to comfort me, to encourage me. The other thing before we move on that I would like you to know, that if you're in a storm, this is a weird part of Christianity or the church, That because you're experiencing a storm doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. The storms are common to those who follow Jesus. Verse 35, Jesus says, let us go to the other side. As we will see, not next week because we're having a worship night, but the week after, Jesus is taking his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, specifically to deliver a man from the power of Satan. And it would be while Jesus was on this mission of mercy that the storm would be encountered. Now, that messes with some people's minds. And and I know in interacting with different people that even from around the world, there's different church cultures that if I'm on a mission from God that I am am not going to experience a storm. I I want you to consider the passage tonight if that is your thinking. He may provide wonderful protection. I hope that he does. But sometimes when we go on on missions trips or 
we go to do ministry, a storm will be allowed to enter into the situation. So my first point was Jesus doesn't cause storms. He leads us through them. My second point is storms purify our faith. Storms purify our faith. Another passage from 1 Peter, again, remember he's writing to the church persecuted, scattered around the world. Well, the Roman Empire. From 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, where he writes to the same people, so that the tested genuineness of your, of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, listen to these words, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a specific day that's coming. This is a specific day where we will, with all the church in God's presence, experience with Jesus, because we're the body of Christ, this wonderful time of glorification, of being changed or transformed. I'm going to make a little bit of a shift here. There should be a picture on the screen now uh, of what is commonly called the Jesus boat. Can you see that? (laughs) I've been here a couple of times. Let me tell you something about this picture because it reminds me of this. It's it's by the Sea of Galilee, which makes sense, but when we would go there, it was during the summertime. We would take high school students, and so we had to wait till they were out of school, and it's extremely warm there. And I remember coming into this, the building there, and it has the best air conditioning in all of the Middle East. I am convinced of that. And the students go in and they see this this movie that describes how this Jesus boat or this ship from the first century, from the time of Jesus, was discovered. And and, and they go, Danny, you going to come in? No, no, I'm going to lay right here. And I literally lay down on a a ledge because the, the stone is cold And the AC is cranking, if you know what I mean. And they go in, they disappear. It's not uncommon for them to come out and for me to be taking a siesta. But anyways, that's a whole different, um, it's a whole different wrinkle on things. So in recent history, when the water level of the Sea of Galilee subsided, a fishing boat, this is it, dating to the first century, was discovered. Let me tell you a little bit about the boat. It measures 26 feet long. It's four feet in height, or from the ground up, and seven and a half feet wide. This boat had the capability of, of, of either using oars and sails. You know, if there, was, if there was wind, they'd use the sails. Obviously, if it wasn't, they would, uh, they would use the oars and could carry up to 15 people. Likely, when we see our story tonight, it was something, the boat was something like this. I'm going to shift gears again. Our story reminds us that the Galilee, even to this day, experiences unpredictable storms. Uh, The sea itself is approximately, depending on the water level, the time of the year, uh, is 700 feet below sea level, meaning that as a fresh body of water, it is the lowest lake on the surface of the planet. When warm, even humid air that gathers above the lake's surface experiences cold winds coming down from Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon has a 9,000-foot elevation. So these colder, heavier uh, winds start coming down, building up speed. They come down and they hit the warm 
the warm air, it causes, this, it causes winds almost like tornadoes to hit the surface of the water. And then, again, likely this may have been what happened when Jesus and his disciples were heading out at night, at night, to the other side, or to the Decapolis, the ten cities. Verse 36 says that Jesus was tired. I think I pointed out as I read through the passage that the disciples kind of took over, and, and Jesus, because of his ministering all day, goes to the rear of the, of the boat, lays down on a cushion, really a pillow, and he falls asleep. I want you to see this. God experiences fatigue. His physical strength had a limit. Remember the story of him carrying the cross? He stumbles and falls. A Roman soldier reaches out into the crowd, grabs an individual and says, you carry the cross. Jesus, in his humanity, had physical limitations, had physical, listen, we use the word, weakness. I want you to know that in the midst of your storm, in his humanity, he knows exactly what you're going through. To him, it's not theory. It's not speculation. That the same thing that touches you, touches him. And so we see Jesus, tired and asleep, soundly asleep, apparently. Bring, being a man allows Jesus to feel what you feel. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest, a representative, who is unable to sympathize, who is not touched with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. However, he is without sin. He is perfectly holy. I want you to think about Jesus as your advocate, as your mediator. Someone who continually represents you before the Father, knowing exactly what you're going through and asking the Father to help you. Some of you who sit here tonight in the midst of your storm have wearied from praying or have wondered in the, in, in, in the stillness of night, why do I pray when nothing seems to happen? And even in your weakness and in your stumbling, there is one who sits at the right hand of the Father saying, Father, but Danny. Father, but Danny. Father, but Danny. And he prays knowing what I feel like. That brings great comfort to me. The third point I would like you to know is that Jesus leads us, Jesus leads us through storms from inside the boat. At the conclusion tonight, I'm almost there, I will say something like, Jesus is the God who is near, not far. And for some of us in this room who have been abandoned by by significant individuals in our lives, we can tend to think that that we are candidates to be abandoned by God. Jesus leads you through the storm from inside the boat. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose. Locals tell us today that typically these storms take place during the day, which is why fishermen at the time would, would fish in the evening or at night. The winds pounded the surface of the water, generating massive waves. Let me read to you from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 24. The boat was being covered with the waves. 
In Luke 8, 23, they began to be swamped and to be in danger. I'm not a big beach guy, but I remember when I was young, we would go to Carlsbad. I, I was raised in Vista. We'd go over to Carlsbad. One of my friends, Walter Cobian, his, his dad worked at a school a couple of blocks away from Tamarack. And so he would take us to work with him in the morning. We'd stay at the beach all day, and then we'd come back, and he would give us a ride back. Mr. Cobian was amazing. And I remember going down to the beach, and we would do this thing called, you know, body surfing. I don't know that we did a lot of that, but that was, the, that was what we were trying to do anyways. And I remember those times that when a wave would take you and it would roll you, you know, push you under and roll you under, and old Danny boy pops up feeling better than ever, and the next wave right behind it smacks me, smack in the face. And, and, and I don't know if you've ever had that sense, the power of those waves, exactly what the disciples are experiencing only they're in the middle. They're in the middle of the sea. And then they speak to Jesus. Keep in mind that these are seasoned fishermen, experienced. And the words that I'm about to read from verse 38 are an accusation against him, a charge. When they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? From their perspective, Jesus was indifferent. And yet the scriptures tell us, our experience tell us, is that when we're in a a storm, Jesus is most engaged with us. He's not distant. He's near. He does care. He's, he's He's not indifferent. He cares about you because you are you and because he loves you. In Psalm 65, verse 7, David writes of God that he stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. In upheaval, our focus should be on Jesus because he cares, because he is in the boat with us. The last point is this. Jesus is the eye of of the hurricane. He is He is our place of safety. He is the eye of the hurricane. Now, we all understand that he doesn't necessarily make our plans, our our storms go away. He remains with us. I think it's fine to ask him. I think it's fine to petition. I think it's normal and natural to ask him to make our problems go away. But even if he doesn't, I want you to remember this. We're almost done. He is the source of strength, of comfort, and calm, even while the storm rages around us. He is the source. A believer, another believer, will say to you, when I was in my storm, I found strength in Christ. When I was in my storm, I found strength in Christ in the Spirit. Or I found strength in Christ in another believer who would walk with me through the storm. Didn't throw verses at me, didn't give me advice. They simply walked with me through the storm. Jesus, Jesus is the eye of the hurricane. It says in verse 39, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and, and said to the sea, Peace be still. It is through this act of compassion that Jesus imparts calm to the hearts of the disciples. And Mark tells us, likely through the Apostle Peter's stories, and there was great calm 
I want you to think that the calm was instant. There wasn't the slightest breeze after his words. It stopped immediately. And the surface of the water was instantly like glass. You know, one of the images from the book of Revelation that I've thought about a lot is it describes this sea of glass. A sea to be sure, but there's not a ripple. It's safe and it's calm. And there are no no storms in eternity in his presence. And we are moving in that direction. Verse 40, Jesus says to the disciples after speaking to the storm, have you still no faith? What Jesus is referencing here is a fear, is the lack of trust that causes an individual to want to give up. Ever been there? To want to give up. I don't think that he's as concerned with them being humans that are afraid. I think his lesson, his teaching, remember he told the parables during the day, his lesson to the night is, don't give up. Derive your strength from me. And maybe there are some here tonight, or again, those who are joining us online, the Lord would say to you in your storm, don't give up. I will give you the strength that you need to come out the other end. It may be that the disciples believed Jesus could save others. He certainly had seen them do that. But the question would be, when would he save them? You know, sometimes the Christian life is, is, is even when the pages of Scripture is described as a walk. You see me walking in the morning. I don't walk like this. <laughs> I'm walking, but I'm like, I don't know, they're going to call 911 when they see this brother walking along. But, you know, but I mean, it's, it's a walk. It's a way of life, you know. And, and Paul even uses, uses the metaphor, the word picture of a race. You know, the Christian, Christian life is like a race. So it's like a walk and it's like a race. But sometimes in the middle of your storm, do you know what faith looks like? It doesn't look like a walk. It doesn't look like a race. All you can do is look at Jesus. You're standing still and continually to look in his direction. And that, my friends, is faith. You're not walking. You're not running. The best you can do is look at him. And that is what he desires in the midst of your storm. You just look at him. And he will get you through the storm. We conclude with verse 41. I'm going to read the whole verse. And they were filled, the disciples, not only in his boat, but the boats that were with him. They were filled with great fear. And they spoke to one another, saying, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The benefit of the storm is they would leave the storm seeing Jesus in a different way. And the interesting thing is that in two weeks when we look... When they arrive at the other side of the sea, they will come into a graveyard. I know, and it's night. It gets worse. It's, it's a graveyard, it's at night, and there's a man who's being tormented by demons. 
And so they, they, they arrive at their destination having learned this lesson about the one who speaks to the wind and the waves and it obeys. And they will watch him speak to the torment in a man's life and the source of that storm, of that spiritual torment, will obey him as well. Three times in our story, this is a conclusion, three times in our story, Mark uses the word that describes something enormous in the Greek. The Greek word for great is mega. First, he tells us that there was a mega storm that slams a boat without warning. Second, Mark, again, through Peter's eyes, speaks of the mega peace that they experienced immediately after Jesus spoke the words, peace be still. Then in verse 41, the disciples experience mega fear as they came to a greater understanding of Jesus' identity. I'll talk about that in a second. The gospel writers help us see Jesus' deity through his acts of power. They verify God's goodness. This is what I spoke about at the very beginning. They verify God's goodness, the perfection of his character, because it is him that we are to trust in. Because it is him that we look to and to the course of our storm. So Jesus' identity. If you and I believe that he's God, then we have to believe what he says. And if you and I believe what he says, then we must obey him. We must worship him. We must allow him to work in our lives. If he is truly God, we will worship him. By way of application, I just want to give you three thoughts on preparing for storms. The first is to be anchored in Scripture. That is the truth of God. Be anchored, know Scripture. Read it. Apply it to your life. Secondly, be cross-focused. And what that means to me is that on a regular basis, I observe communion, remembering what Christ has done for me. As a matter of fact, during our last uh, section of worship, there are the communion elements here provided for you so that you might take them. And then thirdly, be joined to the body of Christ. Would you join me in a word of prayer? So Heavenly Father, truth communicated to the multitudes from the surface of the lake. Heavenly Father, truth communicated to the disciples in the midst of the storm. Father, tonight, truth during our storm or looking back on a storm or anticipating a storm, Lord, truth that Jesus Christ is God. He is Lord and he is with us. He will not, first, he will not abandon us. He will give us what we need as we take our eyes off the wind and the waves and place them upon him. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.